Chapter 11 of Pocket Island. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Pocket Island by Charles Clark Munn. Chapter 11 War Clouds. When Liddy reached her desk at the academy the next day, she found a note in a well-known hand that said, "'My father was very ill. I could not call last eve. I hope to next Sunday.' It was a bittersweet message. At times during the week she felt her face burn at the recollection of how disappointed she had felt the previous Sunday eve. "'I am a fool to care.' she would say to herself, and then when she caught sight of his face and saw the cloud resting upon it, she felt puzzled. She had asked regarding his father's illness and learned he was better, so the ominous shadow was not from that source. She felt sure it was not from an impending declaration of love brewing in his heart, for she knew him well enough to feel that, when it came to that, he would have the manly courage to express his feelings in his usual outspoken way. When Sunday evening came again, she awaited his coming with a new anxiety, and when he arrived her heart felt heavy. He greeted her as though nothing were amiss, and began chatting in an offhand manner, as if to prevent any question from her. He even joked and told stories but with a seeming effort and not in accord with his feelings. Liddy watched him quietly, feeling sure he was acting a part and for a purpose. The more he tried to dissemble, the deeper became her dread. At last, when the chance came, she said in her direct way, "'Charlie, you are not yourself tonight, and I believe you have some serious trouble on your mind.' I wish you would tell me what it is." He looked at her a moment before replying, and then said, "'Oh, well, perhaps I have, but please don't notice it. I do not like to talk of my troubles here. You will dislike me if I do.' "'I shall feel hurt if you do not,' she answered. "'Don't say that,' he replied and then, after looking into her earnest face a moment, he continued in a lower tone, "'You are the last person in the world I would knowingly hurt.' He remained silent for a long time, looking at the fire in a vacant way, and then rising suddenly, he said, "'There is no use. I can't talk tonight. I am out of sorts. I think I will go home.' "'No, no, Charlie.' she replied, trying hard to keep the pain out of her voice. "'Don't go yet. It's too early, and we have not had a visit for two weeks. Please sit down and tell me all about it. Can't you trust me?' He remained standing and looking earnestly into her upturned face and pleading eyes for a few moments in silence. Then he said, "'Yes, I can trust you, Liddy, and I am not afraid to, either.' I am not afraid to trust you with every thought and impulse that ever came to me, but I can't bring myself to hurt you." And then he turned away. His words almost brought the tears to her eyes, but she kept them back. 
When he had his coat on and was at the door, she made one more effort. She clasped his arm with both hands, as if to hold him, and said, "'You have made me very wretched, Charlie. Don't leave me in suspense. I do not deserve it. No matter what it is, please tell me.' He remained silent, but with one hand he softly caressed the two little ones that clasped his arm. Then, as her face sank slowly upon them, he stooped suddenly and kissed her hair. "'When I come again, you shall know all,' he whispered. "'Good night,' and he tore himself away. The meadows were growing green, and the first spring violets were in bloom ere he called again. To explain his strange mood, a little history must be inserted here. The summer and fall of sixty-one and the winter and spring of sixty-two were momentous in the annals of Southton. Fort Sumter had been fired upon, and the war for the preservation of the Union had begun. The President's first call for volunteers had been issued. The Bull Run retreat had occurred, and the seven days' horror of the Chickahominy Swamp followed by the Battle of Fair Oaks and the Siege of Fredericksburg, had startled the country. Secession was rampant, and Washington was threatened. The second call for volunteers had come, and the entire North was alarmed. In the spring of 62 came the third call, and by that time the spirit of patriotism was spreading over Southton. Captain Samuel Woodruff, a born soldier and a brave man, began to raise a company in that town. It did not require a great effort, for the best and bravest of her sons rallied to his call. This spirit even reached the oldest of the academy boys, and was the cause of Manson's strange reticence with Liddy. Among his mates were many who openly asserted their intention to enlist. Before and after school and at noon it was talked about. Some were, like Manson, the sons of peaceful tillers of the soil, and others the sons of tradesmen. But all were animated by the same patriotic spirit, and that was to defend their country in her hour of danger. The example of a few became contagious, and seemed likely to affect all the young men of the Academy of Suitable Age. In fact, it did, for out of about thirty that were old enough, eighteen finally enlisted and went to war. Were it not that a list of their names is not pertinent to the thread of this narrative, that roll of honor should be inserted here, for it deserves to be. But it is not necessary. It is well known in Southton, and there the names of those young heroes will never be forgotten. For weeks, while the fever of enlistment was spreading, Manson had passed through serious mental torture. To sign the possibly fatal role or not to sign was the question. He dared not tell Liddy. He dared not tell his parents. An only son, and one whom he knew his father loved, he felt torn by conflicting duty. Never in his simple life had he passed through such a struggle. Perhaps pride and the example of his mates were strong factors in bringing him to a decision, 
but he reached one at last, and upon a Saturday during the latter part of April he quietly wrote his name upon the enlistment paper in Captain Woodruff's office, and the deed was done. In the meantime, and for the few weeks in which he did not call, Liddy lived in an agony of suspense. She knew what was going on, for it was current gossip in school, and there was something in his face that seemed to her ominous. In school she tried hard to act unconcerned, even when, as often was the case, other girls whose young and loving hearts were sore gave way to tears. Each day she smiled and nodded to him as usual, but the smile had grown pathetic, and into her eyes had crept a look of dread. He saw it all and hardly dared to speak to her. Each Sunday eve she dressed herself for his coming and watched the fire while the tall clock ticked in solemn silence. She dreaded to hear her father speak of the war news, and when at school the gossip as to who had or who was going to enlist was referred to, she walked away. She grew silent and morose, and clouds were on her face at all times. There were plenty of sad and worried looks on other girls' faces at school during those weeks, so she was not alone in her gloom. Manson had felt that deep down in her heart she cared a good deal more for him than her conduct showed, and to tell her of his intentions before he carried them out would be to subject her to needless days of suspense and possibly affect his own sense of duty. Now that it was all over, she must be the first to be told, and how much he dreaded it only those who have passed through the same experiences can tell. He scarcely slept at all that night, and when he presented himself at her house the next day, just before church time, he looked pale and haggard. It was an unusual thing for him to call at that hour, and when Liddy met him her heart sank. Without any formality he asked her to put on her wraps and take a ride. "'I have come to tell you all,' he said and I can talk better away from the house and where we are alone. When they were well on their way and driving along the wooded road toward the top of one of the blue hills, a lookout point whence all Southton's area could be seen, he turned his face and looked at hers for the first time since starting. What he saw there smote his heart. "'It's a nice day for a ride, isn't it, Liddy?' he said pleasantly, trying hard to act natural. Her answer was peculiar. "'I can't talk of the day or anything else, Charlie, till I know the worst. Remember, you have kept me in suspense four long, weary weeks. Tell me now, as soon as you can.' He made no reply, and spoke not another word until they reached the lookout place. In silence he assisted her to alight, and taking the carriage robe, he spread it upon a rock where they had often sat viewing the landscape below. Then he said, in a low voice, "'Please sit down, Liddy. I've fixed a nice seat for you, and now I can talk to you.' 
Then their eyes met for the second time since starting. Her face and lips were pale, and her eyes full of fear. She clasped her hands before her face as if to ward off the coming blow. "'Tell me now,' she said hurriedly. "'Tell me the worst, only tell me quickly. I've suffered long enough.' He looked at her a moment pityingly, dreading to deal the blow and trying to frame it into suitable words, and then it came. "'Liddy,' he said in a husky whisper, "'I love you, and I've enlisted.' A brief sentence, but what a message! A woman's heaven and a woman's hell in six words. For one instant she looked at him, until its full force came to her, and then she burst into tears. And the next moment she was in a heap on the robe-covered rock and sobbing like a child. Instantly he was beside her, gathering her in his arms and kissing her hair, her tear-wet face and lips. Not a word was spoken. Not one was needed. He knew now that her heart was his, and for weal or woe, for joy or sorrow, their lives must be as one. "'Don't cry any more, my darling,' he whispered at last. "'I shall come back all safe, and then you will be my wife, won't you, Liddy?' She made no answer, but a small, soft hand crept into one of his, and he knew his prize was won. When they were ready to leave the hallowed spot, she gathered a bunch of the spring violets growing there, and kissing them, handed the cluster to him in silence. Late that evening, when they parted, she put one arm caressingly about his neck and whispered, "'Give me all the hours you can, Charlie, before you must go. "'They may be all we shall ever have together.'" End of chapter 11 Recording by Roger Moline